If you would take your Bibles, please, and open them to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Today we come to the first of three epistles that are attributed to the Apostle John. But unlike other epistles we find in the New Testament, uh, we're not told to whom this is addressed, at least the first uh, epistle, 1 John, who the author is. There's no greeting of any sort. There is no prayer of thanksgiving. You find all of these in Paul's writings. And there is no closing greeting uh, at the end of this epistle as well. It opens much like the book of Hebrews, diving right into things. But the book of Hebrews has a a closing of sorts. Uh, Timothy is mentioned by name. So we have a sense that it is a letter. Um, We don't necessarily get that sense with this first epistle. In reality, 1 John opens very much the way the Gospel of John does. As with the Gospel of John, by the way, we're not told who the author is. Um, just a side note with the gospel of John we're not told that John wrote it but five times in the gospel of John we are told about the disciple whom Jesus loved we think that this is in fact John that this is how John refers to himself indirectly rather than using his name or saying me or I he refers to himself as the one the disciple whom Jesus loved The reality is we don't know who wrote the Gospel of John or 1 John, but the church has it that, in fact, these were written by the Apostle John. It is interesting, if you look at the Gospel of John and 1 John, that they, in fact, are parallels. 1 John is sort of a mini version of the Gospel of John. They both begin with a prologue. We will be looking at 1 John's prologue today in verses 1 to 4. In the Gospel of John, the first chapter, in the beginning was the word, The first 18 verses form sort of a prologue, an introduction. And then the book is divided, or can be divided, into two sections. Um, The two main parts. Here in 1 John, uh, 1 John 1, 5 to chapter 3, verse 10, which is in fact a commentary on what we find in John 1, 19 to the end of chapter 12. And then the second part of 1 John is verse 11 of chapter 3, to chapter 5, verse 12, which is a commentary then on the second part of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 to the end of chapter 20. And then both books have an epilogue. First John's epilogue is one verse, but the last chapter of the Gospel of John is its epilogue. So as to who wrote this, I don't mean to scare anyone or to be controversial. I would simply say, In a sense, it doesn't matter who wrote these books because it is the writing that is inspired, not the writer. Okay, I think that this is a mistake that we often make. We know, we have 13 letters from Paul in the New Testament. We know of at least two other letters that he wrote, that he mentions, and they're not in the New Testament. That is, they're not inspired. They're not part of the canon. Um, In 1 Corinthians, He tells them that he had written them, they wrote back, and now he responds in what we call 1 Corinthians. Technically, it would be 2 Corinthians, because it's the second letter that we know of that he wrote to them. And then in Colossians, near the end of Colossians, um, Paul tells the people in Colossae, after this letter has been read to you, you people in Colossae, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So he had written to the Laodiceans, 
We don't have that. Okay? It is the writing that is inspired and not the writer. Paul told Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed or inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It is scripture that is inspired a God-breathed. I mean, do you imagine that Paul only wrote 13 letters in his whole life as an apostle? Well, we know he wrote two more, so that's 15. Uh, it isn't the person that is inspired. But that's usually the way that we think of it. Yeah, I was inspired to do something great. Um, that's not a biblical view of inspiration. The second reason why I don't think it's incredibly important that we know who wrote it is that we do know that the author of both the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John was an eyewitness. He was someone who had been there. Um, Follow along if you would. I'll read the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. We'll come back to them in a bit. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. In other words, an eyewitness. And if you look at the last two verses of the Gospel of John, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So in each case, in the gospel and in the epistle, we have an eyewitness who then testifies to what he has seen. More about this in a bit. Having said that, the author writes with authority which is not his own, but the one who commissioned him. There is humility. Okay, as I'll just say John because I think John wrote this as John writes this we don't see someone as like you know, high above everyone he does have authority but he is humble he is with those that he writes to so I'll only read one passage but if you if you're there in 1 John 1 uh, beginning at verse number 5 this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you So here he's speaking with authority. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim, even John as an apostle, if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. John doesn't say, if you claim, okay, if you say you're walking in the light but you're in darkness, he said, if we, he includes himself. And here I, I hear humility from him but there is also authority he makes judgments as we will go through he calls people liars deceivers antichrists 
And then he provides tests. How do you know if someone is telling the truth, that is, regarding the person of Christ, or in fact they are teaching heresy? He says people fall into one of two categories. Either they have God or they do not. Either they know God or they do not. Either they have been born of God or they have not. Either they have life or they abide in death. Either they walk in the light or they walk in darkness. And these are harsh statements as we'll go through. And one is tempted um, to say, well, that's your opinion. And, and who are you to say such harsh things? Well, John is an apostle, an eyewitness, someone who walked with Jesus. He's been commissioned by Jesus. And so he writes these things. Why did John write this epistle, 1 John? Those who have written commentaries on this see this as being one of two things. Either it is a pastoral letter or it is polemical. That is, he is trying to refute certain false ideas. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. I think John is being quite pastoral. At the same time, he is refuting false doctrines. There's, as we go through this, you will see there is a tender pastoral care for the readers. His primary purpose is not to somehow confuse or bewilder the false teachers, but to protect his readers, to reestablish them in their Christian faith. Thirteen times in this letter, he will refer to the readers as dear children, my dear children. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So it is a very pastoral letter. Having said that, it is also a very polemical letter. That is to say, um, it is a deep theological letter. He is trying to refute the false teachings of these false teachers. It's not written from some ivory tower somewhere. He's not in some university library writing this letter out. This is very practical. This is very down to earth. He's dealing with specific situations in the church at that time. It involves false teaching that is quite subtle, um, insidious, because it seems like it is trying to lift up the person of Jesus, but in fact it is tearing him down. In chapter 2, verse 26, he says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Then later on he will say, in chapter 4, they are false teachers. See, a true prophet speaks from the spirit of truth, a false prophet from a spirit of error. They are deceivers. They are antichrist. If you look at chapter 2, verse 18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. But he isn't simply trying to say, Oh, by the way, folks, there are false teachers out there. He wants to talk about what they teach and the implications, how it is seen in their lives. You see, false teaching has two dimensions, and we tend to focus on one. It is false doctrinally or theologically, and John will refute that. But there's something else, and that is ethically. If people have bad doctrine, guess what? It's going to show up in their behavior. It's going to show up in their ethical systems. So their heresy is Christological. That is, they are wrong about the person of Jesus Christ. 
but it is reflected in their ethical indifference. They don't obey the commands of God. They don't think they need to. And they are marked by lovelessness. I'm pretty sure I will stress this as we go through this, but I'm struck by this, how that those who do not have a right view of the Lord Jesus Christ are marked by lovelessness. We sing the hymn, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. It is because of the person of Christ that we know about love. But if, in fact, you deny who he is, then in the process you will lose, if you ever had it, the capacity to love. We will see as we go through this book that there are three marks of authentic Christianity. First of all, a belief that Jesus came in the flesh. Very important. Secondly, obedience to the commandments of God. And thirdly, brotherly love. Augustine wrote centuries ago, the central theme of this epistle is love. So once again, if you look at the first four verses, I want to read them. The prologue. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. In this prologue, John presents the gospel, the word of life. He unfolds the purposes of God from eternity past to eternity future, before the beginning to the fullness of joy. In a sense, he comes full circle. He does so in five stages. It is as though you walk up five steps But where you end up is where you started. That is in the life of God. Eternal life which is the life of God. So let's look at these five stages. The first, and this I think is the biggie. And it's interesting that he doesn't spend as much time on this as I think I would have liked. The eternal pre-existence of Jesus. That is that Jesus lived before time began. In the beginning, that's when God created time. But before that, God had eternal existence. That which was from the beginning. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? In the beginning was the word. He was with God in the beginning. Now, not everyone agrees on this. Some people think that it refers to the gospel, the word of life. But I think it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four things that convince me of this. First of all, John's prologue in the gospel of John is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, We find in verse number two, which was with the Father. Thirdly, we find elsewhere in this epistle, in chapter two, verses 13 and 14, uh, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And then at the the middle of verse number 14, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I don't think it's a stretch to say this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than all of those things, it's what follows, because John talks about having heard, having seen, having looked at, having touched, this, I think, points to a personal encounter. He had met this physical being, this person, this human being, named Jesus of Nazareth. So this brings up the second stage. The first stage is that Jesus existed before the world, 
But the second is that he came into the world. There was, in fact, a manifestation in human history. Uh, and you'll notice that John deals with this in the bulk of the prologue, three verses. Verse number one, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And in verse number three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. There is a progression here from hearing to seeing to, I would say, gazing or looking at intently, not simply glancing at, and then finally touching. One could make the case, and some have, that you go from the most abstract to the most material or concrete. To have heard is not enough. We know in the Old Testament that some people heard the voice of God. To see something is more compelling. To gaze at it for a period of time is even more so. But finally, to be able to physically touch is proof of material existence and reality. The Word was made flesh and lived among us. Sound familiar? John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. By the way, the word for touch is not like if you somehow, you know, when kids are, I touched you last. It's not that type of deal. It means, in fact, it is as though you are blind and you are reaching out to grab something, to grasp something so that you can find your way. It is, in fact, figuratively, to examine closely. So it isn't just, oh, we saw this guy and we heard him and you know, we happened to bump into him one day. No, they heard him, yes, they saw him, they gazed at him and they in fact examined him closely. This was a human being. Just a grammatical note here. The first two verbs, to hear and to see, are in the perfect tense, which speaks of an action that continues the implications or the effects continue in the present. So if I say I threw a baseball to Dave, um, there is a sense in which he now has the ball because I have thrown it to him. But the second two verbs, the looked at and touched, are in Greek aorist tense, which means a completed action. It's a very specific action finished back then. And it seems to imply, or I think it's not speaking so much of Jesus during the earthly ministry, but after the resurrection, after the resurrection, they examined him, they touched him, they looked at him, they gazed on him. And so he says, the life appeared, we have seen it and heard, of, heard it, or he testified to it. Twice we are told about the appearance, by the way, in verse number two. The life appeared, and then at the end, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So we have the eternal Christ, who now comes into human history. The third stage is the proclamation. You see, John and the apostles and the others were not given the opportunity to hear, see, look at, you know, gaze at, and to examine for themselves, as though it's something they were to keep to themselves. They were given this opportunity so that they could proclaim it to others. Verse number three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. That which was manifested in history to John, he now shares with others because it wasn't given to him for him to keep to himself. Okay. Proclamation is the result. 
And in verse number two, we have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life. These two words, testify and proclaim, uh, indicate authority, but two different kinds of authority. To testify, in order to testify, must, one must be a witness. Okay. Before you can bear witness, you must be a witness. You must have seen something that has happened. A true witness cannot speak of something that someone has told him or her. In a court, that's called hearsay. That's hearsay evidence. What John is doing is he is testifying. He has, in fact, seen the Lord Jesus. He has heard him. He has examined him. And so he has the authority of experience. I have experienced being in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. Proclamation is something else. You may proclaim something that you, in fact, have not witnessed. So where does the authority come from? You are commissioned. You are told by someone, this is what you're supposed to tell the people. Jesus revealed himself to John. But more than that, he then commissioned John and the apostles to share the gospel. We have the great commission at the end of Matthew. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Proclamation. This is the authority of commission. Their experience is personal, but their commission has been given to them by the Lord Jesus. It is derived. To testify, the apostles must have seen and heard and examine the Lord Jesus. But to proclaim, they must have received a commission. So Jesus came into the world and appeared to the apostles after his resurrection, not just so that they could testify, but so that he could, in fact, give them a commission. And this gives them great boldness and authority. Sometimes we wonder, particularly with Paul, who oftentimes seems to be quite abrasive, it's like, who are you? You're not the boss of me. Why are you telling me these things? Because he has been commissioned. In the same way that in our country and other countries, an ambassador is sent by the leader. You are our representative in this place. That ambassador must be respectful, obviously, but he has a certain authority. He speaks for the government to that government over there. I think you will hear John's authority throughout this epistle. But why all this authority? Why the big deal about experience or commission? It's the fourth stage that comes up. It is fellowship. Look at verse number three. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Proclamation is not the end in itself. It has at least two purposes. One is immediate, that's fellowship. The other is ultimate, and that is joy. The immediate is so that you may have fellowship with us. Oftentimes people see the gospel as, yeah, we proclaim the gospel so people will get saved. We do want people to be saved to ask God to forgive their sins and to ask Jesus into their hearts. But that's only the beginning of the process. They are then supposed to be part of the people of God. They're now part of the family of God. 
Fellowship refers to participation, that we share a participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, and the indwelling of the Spirit. I can recall in younger days, uh, as people were witnessing to others and the persons, you know, they'd say, you need to be saved, you need to confess your sins. And the question invariably comes back, well, do I have to join anything? And oftentimes the answer is, no, 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 you don't have to join anything. It's like, wait a minute. You become a part of the fellowship of God's people. You share with them the grace of God and the salvation of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. It's really important because this is, in many ways, symbolic of the fellowship we have with God himself and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Because our fellowship with one another arises and depends on our fellowship with God, we have to say both at the same time. We shouldn't simply say, oh yes, we're going to have fellowship with one another. We should realize because we have fellowship with God. Because we have fellowship with the Father and the Son, we can have fellowship with one another. This recalls what Jesus said in his prayer in John 17. That all of them may be one, Father, may they also be in us. Shared participation. We share in the grace of God. It may seem strange that John brings this up, the idea of fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And we would say, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, Damon, you don't need to say that. John, you don't need to write that. But in fact, the false teachers had discounted the person of Jesus. And therefore, if there's no Son, if you don't have God the Son, then you don't have the Father. In essence, they're throwing everything out because of their views. The Father and the Son are not the same. They are distinct, but they are equal. And this will be fleshed out as we go along. We just sort of do an aside here. What was it that the false teachers were saying about Jesus? Well, there isn't like one school of heresy. There were many different thoughts. But the main one was that Jesus, the man, wasn't really the Christ. That Jesus was just a guy. And at a certain point, something happened to him maybe at the baptism, that the Spirit came on him and the Christ Spirit came on him. And then when he was on the cross, the Christ Spirit left him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that, that Christ is not human. He is a spirit. And in doing that, they seem to be elevating the Lord Jesus Christ. He is spirit. He's not flesh. He's not a human being. You're like, well, Thank goodness for that, because I'm a human being and I wouldn't want someone to be like me. No, we've heard, we've seen, we've looked at, we've examined. Jesus came in the flesh. If we lose that, we lose everything. And John writes this epistle to that end. There are those today, I think, who are very much like the false teachers. But they don't mean to be. What they think they are doing is elevating Jesus. 
and they forget that he was in fact a human being. He came here in history, in human history. John saw him and heard him, talked to him. And it is this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for our sins. And the false teacher is like, no, 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 no. You can't have someone human doing this. It is the mystery of the incarnation. We'll see this as we go along, but I think this is something that we don't think about as much as we should, something that we may struggle with. How can Jesus, as a man, be the Savior of the world? Let's just say that he is the Christ Spirit. Yeah, that feels better. No. God made the world. He made us. Jesus came into the world to save us. Again, we'll see this as we go along. The fifth and final stage in which we come full circle is complete joy. The ultimate purpose in proclaiming the gospel, the immediate is that you have fellowship, but the ultimate is that you would have joy. We write this to make our joy complete. So we've come full circle from pre-existence before time began to after time ends when we are in the eternal state. In the presence of God, we will have eternal joy. In John 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That's what we hear in 1 John 1.4. In his prayer in John 17, I am coming to you now, Jesus says to the Father, But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Two questions come up about verse number four. The first question is, is it our joy or your joy? If you look, the NIV has a footnote, okay, where it says your. I would argue if you say your joy, that's included in our joy. If you go back to verse number three, fellowship, we share. It's something we participate in together. So when, if John says our joy, and in fact the difference in Greek is one letter, as it is with our, your, and our, um, it's the same thing. It is a shared joy. The second question, which is a little more difficult to answer, is will we have complete joy in this life? The verses in the Gospel of John that I read to you, John 15, seem to point in that direction. But it isn't just in the Gospel of John. In the Old Testament, Psalm 16, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I would suggest to you, and it is a suggestion, that the joy that Christ gives begins in this life. But it will be made complete when we are in his presence eternally. Being in the presence of God, there our joy will be complete. Or you might say, there it will be completed. But it begins in this life. And indeed, we have joy in this life. But it's not always what we expect. You remember how James starts? Count it all joy 
when you fall into all kinds of troubles, afflictions? Yeah, that's not how I define joy. But the joy, the pure joy that we will have will be in the eternal state. We should never forget what the angel told the shepherds the night Jesus was born. I bring you good news of great joy. The good news, the gospel, in fact, brings joy. Something that will, in fact, be completed when we are in eternity. So it all began before time, before the beginning. And then Jesus comes into the world and he is seen and heard and touched. People testify. They actually saw what he did. They heard what he had to say. So now these witnesses are going out because they've been commissioned to tell people this, this is what Jesus did. This is what he said. By the way, later in First John, John will say, how can you love your brother whom you've seen? But you, you, you don't love your brother whom you've seen, but you love the Lord whom you've not seen. Well, how could they love the Lord? Because he had proclaimed to them. They had believed the message. Proclamation leads to fellowship, shared. We are not the only believers in the world. We're not the only believers in human history. And joy has begun in our hearts. We share this joy, but when the Lord Jesus returns, it will be completed. So this is how John begins his epistle. This is not to the brothers in such and such a place. I am John the Apostle. Write this. I'm thankful for you. I pray for you. None of that. He jumps right in with this prologue. And it is, in a word, the gospel. This is the good news. The Son existed before time. The Son came into human history. The Son is proclaimed by the apostles. Those who have heard believe and share. And we have joy. The Lord willing, we will get into the first part of the epistle, verse number five, and on next Sunday. But in writing the sermon, I wondered two things. First of all, what would John write if he were writing us an epistle today? And the second question is, what do people think of Jesus today? There are some who deny that Jesus existed, but they tend to be in the minority. Um, even unbelieving, non-believing scholars grudgingly, begrudgingly admit that Jesus of Nazareth lived. So the part about having heard, seen, looked at, touched, they're okay with that. But not the first part of verse number one, that he was here before the beginning. So our situation, I think, is almost the reverse of what John faced in the first century. There there were people saying, yeah, but he wasn't really a man. He was some type of spirit, some type of phantasm. You know, because if he was a man, that's, to be human, is, that's degrading. I mean, thinking somehow that they are elevating him. Today, people are like, no, no, he was a man, uh, but he wasn't God. He wasn't divine. Uh, I think if John were to write to us today, he might write things a bit differently. Or maybe not, because we need to know that Jesus existed in human history and that he existed before human history. As we go along in this series, we will see the three marks of authentic Christianity. We believe that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh. Secondly, we obey his commands. And thirdly, we love one another. We have brotherly love. 
And I'd say it's a package deal. You can't say, well, I'll do this one, but I don't care for the other one. I find it remarkable, as I've lived, how many people say that they believe in Jesus and they have no love for the brothers or sisters. Got a problem there. Or that they believe, but they will not obey. And there are those who say they love, but they do not believe. It's a package deal. If we are the people of God, as John writes to us as his dear children, we must believe and acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh, that we are to obey his commands, and to follow his examples, we are to love one another. By the grace of God, may this be true in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, oftentimes we do the wrong thing by doing something that we think is right. By somehow elevating Jesus to a non-human status. I thank you for the prologue to this letter. As John begins to remind his readers, whom he loves dearly, his dear children, of the truth of the gospel. That Jesus is the Son of God has existed eternally but he did come and live as a man John and the apostles and others were commissioned to go out and preach this good news so that people might share in relationship with one another but also with the Father and the Son we thank you for the joy we have in Christ and we look forward to the day when our joy will be complete. Thank you for your love, for your grace, your tender mercies in our lives. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.